Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through His Word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. We're going to share today a message that I'm entitling, The Altar of Going, the altar of going. If you have a Bible, I would love and invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. If you have a Bible, maybe a smartphone or a tablet, I don't know what you're using, but 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is where we're going to look today. I want to welcome those that are streaming live today. Thank you so much uh, for streaming with us, and we pray the Holy Spirit would speak to you right where you are. The altar of going. Now, Church, I know that at this church, Dwelling Place, we never talk about disciple-making around here, all right? I understand that. I understand we're not a discipleship church, and I understand that we don't talk about what it means to really follow Jesus and be multiplied in other people. But, of course, I'm being facetious. What I want to do today is I want us to re-look at the Great Commission. Co meaning cooperation, mission meaning Christ mission. We're cooperating with Christ. That's what we're doing in the Great Commission. And in that Great Commission, I want us to read together Matthew chapter 28. Jesus said in verse 19 that all authority has been given to me. All authority in heaven and earth. He says in verse 19, you therefore go, or as you're going, make disciples. And I want to focus today's message on the next three words. To make disciples of all nations. I'm charging you, Jesus said, to make disciples of all nations. How do we do that? Baptizing people, that's evangelism included, in the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. And teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always in this disciple-making venture, even to the end of the age. Now, I trust that we realize, if you'll keep the scripture up there, that word nations there does not mean 200 plus United Nations. It does not mean 200 plus geopolitical entities of which we call nations today. That Greek word there is the word ethne. The Greek word is ethnic groups. In other words, these are people groups. Make disciples of all peoples. Make disciples of every group on the planet. Now, listen, today, church, there is just over 11,000 different unique people groups in the world. Now, some people will say up to 15,000, depending on how that is subdivided. You can go on down the line and and do it by income and do it by the place of socioeconomic living, but there's about 11,000 people groups in the world. Approximately 6,000 of those people groups are still unreached by the gospel. 6,000 different individual people groups are untouched by the gospel. They comprise of about 2.8 billion people on planet earth that are unreached today. Now, let me be really clear with that word unreached. I don't want any confusion. Unreached does not mean lost. Unreached does not just mean I am lost without Christ. So people, catch this, are just as lost in Woodstock and Canton as they are in Somalia, as they are in New Delhi, as they are in India, as they are in Malaysia, okay? If you're apart from God in your sin, apart from Christ, you are just as lost no matter you live in this place on the planet or that place on the planet. But there is a difference and a marked difference when it comes to gospel access, when it comes to Woodstock and Somalia, when it comes to Woodstock and and Malaysia. Access is what we're talking about when we say there's 2.8 billion people unreached. I don't know if you noticed or not, but there are a few churches in Atlanta. 
On the way here this morning, I imagine you passed a few churches. I imagine you drove right by some great churches. There are gospel-preaching churches. There are gospel-believing Christians across Atlanta. But that's not the case in Somalia. That's not the case in Malaysia. There's not churches anywhere. And there are a few Christians, but if those Christians speak up, they will have their throats slit this afternoon. They will die today for the profession of Jesus. So they don't have access to the gospel. There's people in Somalia, there's people in India that don't hear today the gospel. They don't know a believer who can point them to the truth of Jesus Christ. They don't know a believer that can share with them the good news. So that's why we don't say, well, I don't know why we talk about unreached people groups. I got unreached people groups in my office. There are unreached people in my neighborhood. Well, those people are not unreached. And you say, Craig, how do you know? Because they are in your office. And they are in your school. And they are in your neighborhood. And you are their access to the gospel. They are not unreached. Yeah, they may be lost. Yes, they may not have hope in Christ. But they're not unreached. You are there. God has planted you in that neighborhood for the salvation of their soul. God has planted you in that office for the salvation of their soul. So follow this real real quickly, church. 2.8 billion people in the world just like you and me. Families just like ours. Kids just like ours. 2.8 billion people right now who are on a road that leads to an eternal hell and no one has even told them about Jesus or the way to make it to heaven. Let's take it beyond that of the global 2.8. There's about 165 million people in America that are right now on their way to hell, on their way to a Christless eternity that doesn't have someone specifically maybe engaging their life with the gospel on a daily basis. So what I want to do this morning is I want to take a few moments and I want to speak on behalf of 2.8 billion people. I want to speak on behalf of people who are without hope today because of the urgency of our hour. And what I want you to do, and I want to challenge, and I want to call, listen to me closely, every follower of Jesus under the sound of my voice, I want to challenge you and call you today to say to God, God, where do you want me going? Where do you want me going? As I'm going, where is it you want me to go? Where is it? Do you want me? Just say to God, do you want me? If you're married, do you want us? If it's your kids involved, do you want us as a family to go somewhere and share the gospel? Do you want us as a family to continue to leverage our current jobs for the gospel? What do you want to see out of me and my going. Just ask God and see what he says. Just listen to him. Just give him ears to actually hear what he says to you. I want to call every follower of Christ to ask God that question today. God, where do you want me to go? Where do you want me going? And that going, by the way, can look all kinds of different ways. I want to be clear here. I'm speaking to the youngest person in the room, and I'm speaking all the way to the oldest person in the room so that your going could involve you and your family going on a short-term mission trip. Maybe you and your family, over the next year, you go and you spend a week of your life sharing the gospel with people who have never heard the gospel. Maybe they've never had contact with the gospel. It could be longer than that. It could be a month. It could be two months of your life. It could be a semester. It could be a summer. I'm thinking students right now. Let me speak to the students. If you're a student, 
student in the room. You got to think of a summer. When I was a student in college, I never spent my summer staying at home. Every year I interned, I put myself in a place to share the gospel with other people. Whatever it is, if it's a semester somewhere else, you share the gospel. I was thinking just last night about Mormonism. Think about Mormonism. I mean, Mormon families train and raise their children with the expectation that they will indeed spend some time as a student in some place in the world sharing a false gospel. They know and train and raise their kids knowing they're going to spend at least two years of their life to, 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 shred, to spread a false gospel among peoples of the earth. If they're doing that with a false gospel, then why in the world are we not raising our kids with that kind of expectation with the one true gospel? That we would raise our kids with the one true gospel's desire and urgency. So students, listen to me. I want you to hear this, Pastor. Unless God comes to you in a vision and tells you don't go, Find a time in your student life where you go and you share the gospel. You go in some capacity and share the gospel with unreached people. You go and declare God's goodness and glory among the nations, among the neighborhoods. There should not be a person under 18 in this room who is not prioritizing the mission trip for DP students this summer. It shouldn't even be a possibility. As parents, it wouldn't be a possibility for me and my kids. It wouldn't be an option. An option, they're going to go, they're going to share, they're going to be exposed to share the gospel with the ethne, to make disciples of all nations. And beyond that, start thinking other ways you can go. Many times we think of missionaries as the ones who sell all that they have, they quit their jobs and they move overseas. And God could lead you to do exactly that. But don't just think that way, because God also could be saying in telling you not to leave a job, but to leverage a job, to leverage the income, to go and make the gospel somewhere else known in Woodstock, somewhere else known in Cherokee County, somewhere else known in the world. Listen, I don't presume, although I'm a pastor of this congregation, I don't presume to know everything about everyone in this room, but I got a real sneaky suspicion that there are gifts, there are talents, there are opportunities, there are educations, there are experiences that can be used in other places around the world for the spread of the gospel. That there are jobs many of you have that can be used for the entrance of the gospel into people that I don't have access to. Think about the globalization of today's market. You get on a plane in Atlanta, you talk to somebody who has a lumber company in Southeast Asia, they got a lumber company in Africa. What if God used the globalization of the today's marketplace for the spread of his glory among the nations? He did just that. That's what he's doing today. That's what he's enabling the gospel to find access into far corners of the earth. If we would just get out of thinking, just tunnel vision, do life here, could we do life somewhere else? Could we do life in a new way, in a new lens, in our workplace to share the gospel with people that don't know? But let me just stop there. All the way beyond that, think all the way into retirement. Uh, This is a startling fact. You ready? Did you know that Uncle Sam's money will provide not just for the playing of golf in South Florida, that same money, same money can be used for the spread of the gospel in Atlanta. (laughs) Who would have known? Right? Like retirement money can be used for the spread of his glory. Same money. Uncle Sam fueling the gospel. Uncle Sam fueling the gospel, not only here in our area, but around the world. Malaysia, I was reading an article, actually has a system they've developed to try to convince Americans, Western people, economic incentives to try to and convince the people to retire there in Malaysia. So senior adults, go live it up in Malaysia for the spread of the gospel, right? I mean, 
Really, understanding what it is that God has called. If he's given me breath in my body, I still have life and purpose here on earth. To make disciples of all ethne, of all people groups. So from the youngest to the oldest, there's opportunities there. Just think, I mean, just think if you're, if you're older in life, the last days of your life, what would be better, spending the last days of your life hitting golf balls in Florida or spreading the gospel to people that don't know it? I mean, think about that. The, the, the final moments before you see Jesus face to face, your life is being used to share the gospel with people that desperately need it. What matters more, I guess, is what I'm saying this morning. And I want you to see in the next few moments what can matter. What really matters. Now, I know when I say that, go share the gospel among people. Your mind immediately thinks as a Westerner like mine, oh, people are killed, people are abducted on the mission field. You're talking about Somalia, people get death threats. They get their throats slit. Al-Shabaab, jihadist, terrorists. What, are you serious? Why would I be willing to go there? Why would I do a short-term mission trip there? I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you asked. Years ago, I was talking to a professor. I won't tell you what Christian university, but a professor of a Christian university told me how the trustees of that church, of that school, would no longer allow any professors to take any ministry students to any mission trip in any Muslim country. The trustee said, you can't do it because there's too much risk. He said, the trustee, I said, the trustees don't want the students to follow the Great Commission and obey it? He said, oh, no, 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 it's not just the trustees. That's not the biggest barrier to try to get the gospel to Muslim countries. It's the parents. He said the trustees are on board. The trustees are good with allowing the gospel and the students to go on these mission trips. But he said the parents won't allow it to happen. The parents of Christian students won't let them go. They say it's too dangerous. The parents aren't going to go. So they're surely not going to let their kids go. And I thought, you know what? We are totally missing it in the church. We are totally missing it. Totally. Think about that. As parents, we tell our kids to get good grades. We tell them to practice the sports. We tell them to learn this instrument. We tell them to spend these hours in front of a screen. We prioritize taking them all over the place to every activity, every dance, every kind of practice available, every kind of sport available, all the lessons. We tell them they need a good education. We tell them they need to be athletic. We tell them they need titles. We tell them they need to be successful. We tell them they need to go off to college. They need to get a good degree. They need to get a good job. They need to make a good living. We are teaching them to do all these things. We're immersing them in all of these things. And along the way we are not teaching them to know God we're not teaching them to love God we're not teaching them to prize God above all things to serve God to spread the gospel wherever they live what we actually normally just say is oh well I'll just drop them off at the youth group or oh I'll just drop them off in the kids rooms and yes oh no the church exists to help those things the church exists to help that process but this is as parents our God-given responsibility it's our God-given responsibility what to raise up our children and it cannot be accomplished if we are immersing our children in the things of this world, if we are dads, I'm speaking to dads like me today. If we're dads who would rather teach our kids how to swing a bat or swing a golf club than to teach God's word, to study God's word and declare his glory, we have missed the point. If we are moms in this room who are teaching our kids to put our girls to put on makeup and to learn how to dress, but rather than teaching them how to cultivate the character of Jesus Christ and spread the gospel, we are missing the point. The reality 
reality is, if we're not careful, and I want you to hear my heart, one day our sons and daughters will stand before a God whose eyes are like fire, and all of the things that we told them were meaningful for all the years we had them in our house will burn up in the fire, and they're going to be sitting there standing before God empty-handed, and it will be because of our fault. It will be our fault. What matters? What matters? The goal of biblical parenting, listen to me, church, is not to help your children get a great education. The goal of biblical parenting is not to, not to get a, your kid to be a great athlete, to go on great dates or have a great career or, or to make great money. The goal of biblical parenting is to help your children accomplish a great commission. A great commission that Jesus has constrained their hearts. Folks, this totally changes the way we look at our lives then. This totally changes the way we look at our families, the way we do activities, what we do as a family. Some of you are thinking, this is crazy. I want to show you why it's not crazy. This is what makes sense if you believe the gospel. It's not crazy. This is what makes sense. This is the way the Bible compels us to think. Now, if you look in 1 Corinthians 15, the reason I have you there is because if you look right in the middle of the chapter, verse 30, Paul talks about taking risk for the gospel. He's risking his life. He says in verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? Look what he says in verse 31. He said, I die every day. He goes on in verse 31 and says that he had to fight beasts in Ephesus. Paul's talking about fighting beasts, literal animals in Ephesus. Paul is willing to go into difficult and dangerous situations and places for the sake of the gospel. And look, he tells us in this chapter not just why. He tells us why, and not just so we will know why, but also so we will have the same motivation. Look at the very end of the chapter, verse 58. This is how the chapter ends. Look what Paul says. He says, Therefore, my beloved brother, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in in the Lord is not in vain. He's wanting you to have the same motivation he had. Paul does not want these Corinthian Christians to live their lives in vain. He wants their lives to count. He wants their lives to matter. As I've prayed this week, and I want you to hear me as your pastor, as I've prayed this week and asked God to speak, here's what I've prayed. God Use your word to cause people to not live their lives in vain. Use your word to supernaturally speak to people and challenge people and convict people. What counts? According to Paul, what counts is risking your life for the spread of the gospel. What counts is sharing the gospel with people around you. It's what makes sense. And I want to show you today why it makes sense. Now, I don't have time to dive into every detail of 1 Corinthians 15, although I wish I could. I love this chapter. I want to show you three great principles or what we call prominent themes in this chapter. And then I want to give you three reasons why you should go to God today and say, where do you want me going? Where do you want me going? Why should you tell the Lord those words today? Number one, here's the number one reason why. You should say to God, where are we going? Where do you want me to go? Because death is coming. Because death is coming. 1 Corinthians 15 is all about death. It's about life and death. Death and life. Look in the middle, verse 20. Follow with me in your Bibles. Lots of text we're going to read today. Look at verse 20. Every one of us, he says in verse 20, he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Listen to the death language. For as by a man came by death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as an Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. Look at verse 23. He goes, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at the coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying 
every rule and every authority and every power. He goes on in verse 26 and he says, For he must reign till he put all enemies under his fate. And he said, The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Listen to me. Death is our destiny. No one person in here will escape death unless the Lord comes back. You will die. Verse 26 says, death is our enemy. That's important for us to remember. Look at me, church. Death is coming. Now think about what that means for a minute. On the one hand, death is coming. Your death is coming. My death is coming. There's coming a day I will stop breathing. There's coming a day you will stop breathing. It could be today for any one of us. It could be this week. It could be tomorrow. Not one person in this room is guaranteed to be living when we gather together next Sunday again at 9.30 a.m. Not one person. I just went to Hearthstone Roswell Memorial Care Center where my greatest mentor, who was one of three people who specifically confirmed the call of God on my life in ministry, she was my greatest mentor at 86 years old, Dorothy Dunn, who God has brought at full circle. And a year ago, her family sold her house, her children, and moved her 11 miles from the place where we planted the church from Chattanooga to here. I visited her, visited her a couple months ago. She did not know who I was. We had a great time of prayer, but I went in just a few moments ago and I walked into her room and she is on death's door. Her voice is rattling. She might not make it through today. Hospice says in the next few hours. And I'm watching the sunlight come through the windows and it hits me again. We are almost dead. We only have one life. We only have one life. All of us, I don't care who you are, you're the healthiest among us. 70, 80, 90 years compared to trillions of trillions of years, our life is almost over. It's a vapor. It's here one moment, it's gone the next. It's a mist. It passes by so quickly. Listen, I'm not trying to be depressing. But what I'm trying to be is very eye-opening, that life is short, so don't waste it. Life is so short, so don't waste it. You and I are not on earth for long. We don't have a lot of time. Life is a vapor. Scripture says life is a mist. Life is short. Don't waste it. Don't waste it. Don't waste it. Think about John Patton. Oh, John Patton, he was amazing pastor, pastor for 10 years in a thriving church in Scotland. Show him the picture of John Patton. I love the story of John Patton. He, He pastored a church in Scotland for 10 years. It was a thriving church. He sensed the Lord leading his life to go to a set of islands in the South Pacific Ocean called the New Hebrides. And the New Hebrides were a people, a Pacific Island people that were filled with cannibalistic individuals. They had no access to the gospel whatsoever, no knowledge of the gospel. So his heart, as he was pastoring this thriving church, began to go and God put on his heart to go to one specific island where 20 years earlier, two missionaries, husband and wife, had gone to the island, shared the gospel, had been killed and cannibalized. They ate their entire bodies. But he felt this desire. God was calling him to go to this island. He told the church in Scotland and everybody in the church said, no, 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 no. They tried to dissuade him. They tried to communicate to him, don't you dare go to New Hebrides. Don't you dare go to those cannibalistic people. The cannibals, the cannibals. He ends up going to those cannibalistic people. Look what he writes in his journal days before he dies. Among many who sought to deter me, one was a dear old Christian gentleman in my church whose crowning argument was always, the cannibals, the cannibals, you'll be eaten by the cannibals. At last I replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grace there to be eaten by worms in that grave. He said, I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to 
to me, whether I'm eaten by cannibals or whether I'm eaten by worms. I love that. He did leave at 33 years old. He took his wife and newborn baby to New Hebrides. Within three months, the headway was strong. He found himself on his knees digging the grave of his wife and digging the grave of his newborn child with his own hands. But do you know what? He stayed there. He faced threat after threat after threat. And after 20 years, most of the cannibals on that island came to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. What are you trying to say? I'm trying to say we've got one life, folks. One single life. And it's short. It's here and it's gone. Oh, Holy Spirit, wake us up. Enliven us. Your life changes in this world when you realize you're only here for a short time. We're all standing right now on the porch of eternity. So let's make the most of it today. Amen? We don't invest our lives here in temporary trinkets and temporary pleasures. That won't last. That's what the world tells you to do. Accumulate more. Get more. Invest your life here. Go Go for temporary pleasures, but don't live and don't buy. Listen, I'm challenging this church. Let's live for what will matter 10 trillion years from now. Let's live right now for what will matter 10 billion years from now. Let us live our lives in a way that counts. You know just not our death is coming, but the people we need to minister to, their death is coming. Do you know this? It's not just our lives are ending. Their lives are ending right now. We're talking about 2.8 billion people in the world right now who've never heard of Jesus, who've never heard of heaven, who've never heard of repentance and faith in Christ. And if nothing changes, can we just be honest if nothing changes those 2.8 billion people will die and they will enter into an eternity in hell without ever hearing about how to go to heaven without ever hearing about the gospel of Jesus Christ they don't have much time either they're on the porch of eternity with no hope with what the Bible calls conscious torment in Luke 16 in Matthew 22 it's called outer darkness in 2nd Thessalonians 1 it's called divine destruction Jesus calls it everlasting future filled with fiery agony fiery agony is what awaits people who don't know Jesus, he said in Mark 9. Some people read the Bible and they say, well, isn't that language just uh, figurative? Like it's symbolic language, like fiery agony? I don't know. I'll give you that. Okay, maybe it is. Maybe it is figurative language. But what does that language symbolize? A beach retreat? Vacation in the mountains? No, it symbolizes a terrible place to be. A terrible place and a terrible existence. The Bible says they will never, ever, Revelation 20, I read it again this week, never, ever will they escape. It's enough for the Bible just to say never, but they want to say never and ever. Why? Forever and ever, because they don't want us to miss the point. The point is that this hell is a never, ever ending place. We're not just playing games here. We're living for eternity. There's a real eternal hell awaiting Sinners who don't know Jesus. Jonathan Edwards, the great revivalist, you know his great sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, was holding a pole. People started holding the poles in the church as he preached because they thought they were sinking into hell. And he writes these words. They're deafening. Imagine yourself to be cast into a fiery oven or into a great furnace where your pain would be as much greater than that occasion by accidentally touching a coal of fire. As the heat is greater, imagine also that your body were to lie there for a quarter of an hour, all the while full of quick sense. What horror would you feel at the entrance of such a furnace? And how long would that quarter of an hour seem to you? And after you'd endured it for one minute, how overbearing would it be to you to think that you had to endure it the other 14 minutes? 
And how much greater would the effect be if you knew you must endure it for a whole year? And how long, he said, how vastly greater still if you knew you must endure it for a thousand years? Oh, then, how would your heart sink if you knew and you thought that you must bear it forever and ever, that there would be no end, that after millions of millions of ages, your torment would be no nearer to an end than it ever was, and you would never, ever, ever be delivered. That is deafening. Why would we not then spend our lives saying to God, whatever you want me to do to spread the gospel, I will do it. I don't care what the cost is. Whatever you ask me to do, God, I'll do it. Wherever you want me going, God, I'll do it. Whatever resources I'll have, I'll leverage for the sake of the gospel. For the gospel. Number one, death is coming. But number two... Resurrection is real. Let me bring this back up. We need to. Let me bring it back up. This is good news. We're to say to God, where do you want me to go? Because resurrection is real. Let's bring this up. Look at the Bible. Paul, in the first 11 verses, he just quotes the gospel. He quotes the gospel in a very beautiful way. Look at verse 3 with me. Look what he says in verse 3. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas, and then he appeared to twelve. And notice this. He then appeared to more than 500 brothers at once, of whom are still most alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one ultimately born, he appeared also to me. Now, Paul, listen, he's, he's doing something interesting here. He's laying a foundation here. If we're not careful, it can seem pretty, if I can say it this way, elementary to us believers. Yeah, okay, Jesus rose from the dead. Ho-hum, big deal. Oh, Jesus got up from the grave. It, we reread this first part of the chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 with kind of a ho-hum sense of monotony. Oh, I know that. Oh, Jesus rose from the dead. But think about that today. Think about that fact of resurrection. There's nothing ho-hum about resurrection. There's nothing ho-hum about a man coming back to life. A man who died. He died in the most violent way possible in the Roman Empire. He died at the hands of sinners. He died on a Roman cross. And then after three days, dead, being put into a grave, he came to life and he appeared to all these people. He appeared to all the brothers. We have more historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus than any other issue and event in all of history. So you're just not putting some blind faith. You're putting faith in a fact that Jesus got up again. Now think about that that's not ho-hum a man who died imagine you today going to a funeral you watch a man in a casket you see a body a man's body put into a, a coffin the coffin's put into the ground the ground you watch it go six feet under the dirt comes on top of the coffin and you walk away and next Sunday on your way to church that guy comes up to you on the street and he says hello to you there's nothing ho-hum about that there's nothing monotonous about that Resurrection, that is crazy. That's strange. Yeah, it is crazy because it's the craziest, best news in the entire world. What did we preach last Sunday? Jesus has risen from the dead. He is risen from the dead. The greatest news in all the world is that death has been defeated. Jesus, every time he met death, death died. Now, may that never be ho-hum for us. May that be glorious to us. That Jesus rose from the dead. So here's the problem. In Corinth, where Paul is ministering, they all believed in the Greek mythology or the Greek uh, understanding and mindset in the immortality of the soul. But they did not believe in the immortality of the body. 
So if you were a Greek, you believed that you died, the immortality of your soul would go on, but that was the end of your body. So the Christians who even know Christ are denying a bodily resurrection. Paul said, no, 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 no. Let me just show you what implications you're saying if you say Jesus did not have a bodily resurrection and you do not get a bodily resurrection. So now he's going to tell them. This is what that means. This is the implications of that. He says, do you realize what you're saying? Look at verse 12. If you don't believe in the physical resurrection of your body, then you are saying Jesus himself didn't rise from the dead. Then after, right after that, let's think about this, guys. He says, what if Jesus is a person who didn't physically rise from the dead. What if he never physically rise from the dead? What are the consequences? And he lists them all. Follow with me in your Bible. Our faith is futile, he says. We stand guilty before God in our own sin. Look at verse 14. Our faith is in vain. Verse 17. Our faith is worthless. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we have staked our entire lives for eternity on the decomposed remains and corpse of a Jewish carpenter 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. And not only is that crazy, we've staked our lives on that body that's still in the grave. Not only is that absurdity, the reality is that we are not even forgiven of our sin before God. He says, you say, I thought Jesus' death on the cross forgave our sins. And I get this from people all the time. I thought his death on the cross forgave our sins. Yes, he died on the cross for our sins, but it's actually in his resurrection where we see that the price he paid for our sin was accepted before God. Look at Romans 4.25. He was delivered over to death for our sins. He was raised to life for our justification. You can't just be forgiven of sin if he's still dead. So he was raised to life for our justification. God the Father accepted the sacrifice of payment, redemption that the Son paid for on Friday afternoon. And he raised us to newness of life. And he wasn't just raised to life. If he wasn't raised to life, he wasn't raised to life for our justification. And then Paul says our justification is not a reality. We're guilty, which means the gospel is not actually good news. It's vos. And our mission in discovering and sharing our mission is not really helpful. It's destruction and it's not true. He goes on in verse 15. Man, I wish I had all the time. He says in verse 15, if Jesus didn't get raised from the dead, then we are misrepresenting God. We're dishonoring God. We're spreading lies about God. We're defaming God. And as if that's not enough, he said, those who died before us, our brothers and sisters in Christ who died before us, anybody got parents who died before you in Jesus Christ? He said, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, they're not forgiven. And they're in hell as well. All this leads to Paul saying, my life, risking it all to make the gospel known to people, risking it all to lay my life and resources down for the gospel, it makes no sense. My life is to be pitied, verse 19, if this life is all we have. My life makes no sense. What I do in my life makes no sense if Jesus didn't get up from the grave. But look at verse 19. He says, if in Christ we have opened this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If there's no resurrection and this life is all there is, he says in verse 32, eat, drink, and be merry. Just, just blow it in the wind. Just go and do something crazy. If this life is all there is, which makes sense, church. If this life is all there is, can I just give us permission? Live it up in this world. If this is all there is, eat, drink, and be merry. Store up all you can in your barns. Make everything you can about you, live your life about your comfort, live your life about what you want and what you desire. It makes perfect sense to live self-indulgently if this life is all there is. It makes perfect sense to make life as comfortable as we can if this life is all there is. Taking risk for the gospel, being sacrificial for the gospel, that makes no sense if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead. And many people here, you've heard of, you've heard of Pascal's theory. Blaise Pascal, a great philosopher, Pascal's wager. 
Let me give you a very simple definition of Blaise Pascal's wager. He said, it was better to be a Christian than a non-Christian solely based on the chances. And what he said was, if you live life as a Christian and later come to find out later Christianity is false, you won't have lost much. Because after all, you lived a moral life, you served people, you loved people, you reached out to people. But if you live as a non-Christian in the world and then in eternity, you discover Christianity was true, you will have lost everything and you will spend eternity in hell. So he says, when you play the chances, it's worth it. In other words, it's smarter to be a Christian than a non-Christian. It's smarter. It's wiser. It makes more sense. But Paul could not disagree more with this in this text. Look how he disagrees with Blaise Pascal. He said, what Pascal could be saying might be true and might be the case if all that existed in Christianity was a living, a nice, cozy, comfortable Christian life and the confound and comforts of this world, which is how many people in 21st century America church describe Christianity. But that is not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is about laying your life and your rights down for the spread of the gospel. Biblical Christianity is picking up your cross and following after Jesus. It's about embracing a cross. It's about embracing suffering. That's what we find on the pages of the New Testament. It's about sacrificing comforts and sacrificing pleasure and taking risk and faith. And only all of that makes sense, church, if Jesus is risen from the dead. But Paul says, if Jesus isn't risen from the dead, then my life makes no sense. Let me ask you a question. Oh, hear me. Would that be said about your life? Here it is. Would people say your life makes no sense if they discovered some bones in Jerusalem today? Would they say your life makes no sense? Then what Paul does is so beautiful. In verse 20, he turns it and flips it. And he says, oh, the good news is that Christ has been raised. <laughs> yeah, that's all of what would happen if Christ hadn't been raised, but Christ has been raised. So watch this. You ready, church? Let me preach you happy. Now turn all of those and reverse them on top of their head. You know what he says? Jesus is alive. Now switch those things around. Our faith is not futile. You listen to me, believer. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, I want to tell you, your faith is well-founded. Your faith is in a Savior who overcame death, hell, and the grave and is seated next to the Father right now. Your faith is well-founded and you are not not guilty before God, but you stand righteous and approved and accepted before God. This message we have is not false. It is true. This mission that we have is not destructive. It is urgent. There's no more urgent message on the planet today than the message of sharing the gospel with people who have not heard it. Those that are gone before us, moms and dads, aunts and uncles, grandpas and grandpas, they're cheering us on, trying to get us to take more risk for the gospel because they see Jesus face to face. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your moment. Take more risk for the gospel. Share the gospel with any and everyone you come into contact with. Why? At this, this kind of life is not to be pitied. Like Paul said, this kind of life is to be envied. This kind of life is to be looked forward to. Listen to me, church. Your life is not in vain when you are doing what the resurrected Christ has called you to do. You're not in vain. There's not a moment of vanity in a Christ-filled resurrection, power-filled life. Can I just tell us, you will not regret making the gospel known in your neighborhood when you step into eternity. You, you hear me? You will not regret making the gospel known to your coworkers when you step into eternity. You will not regret for one moment making the gospel known in the nations when you step into eternity. You will not regret it one moment. And think about this, church. <laughs> Resurrection is real. 
It's real, folks. It is real. These are not kumbaya words we gather around on Sunday. It is real. The gospel and the resurrection are real. Think about it. Yes, there are risks. Yes, there are dangers. Yes, it is uncomfortable. Unreached people groups are unreached for a reason. They're hard to reach. All the easy ones are taken. The 6,000 groups that are still not reached, they're unreached for a reason. It's difficult to reach them. It's difficult to reach out to them. It's difficult for them to see the salvation of God. So why would we go there? What could happen to us? And I told my wife this week, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I was in my office and I was thinking about this because of the of the seemingly bizarre fears that I've had in my own life over the last six months. Fears that I've never dealt with in my life. Fears that overtake. Fears that try to cloud judgment. And it just hit me. Thought, what is the worst thing that could happen to you in going and sharing the gospel? What's the worst thing? You can die. And what does Paul say in Philippians 1:21? To live is Christ. And to die is gain. You didn't catch that. To live is Christ and to die is gain. You know what? Do you realize what just happened? What Paul actually did? Jesus has taken the worst thing that could happen to you and turned it to the best thing that can happen to you. You have no fear. He took the worst thing that can happen to humans and made it the best thing that can happen to humans, which is being in the presence of our God. So that you can say, no matter what you ask me to do, God, I'll do it. Where do you want me going? How do you want me sharing? What do you want me speaking? How do you want me to live as a vessel? Dying, he said, is gain. Folks, let's not just move beyond that scripture like it's easy to read it and believe it. Do we really believe dying is gain? Do we really believe that? So number one, we should ask God, where do you want me going? Because death is coming. Number two, because resurrection is real. Number three, because where all of history is headed, I'm out of time. Where of all of history is headed. Look back at our passage, 1 Corinthians 15. Watch. He begins to paint a picture of where all of history is headed. Why should we go? Why should we live our lives on the altar of going? Because death is real. Death is coming. Resurrection is real. And number three, all of history is headed. Look at verse, uh, verse 25. Read with me. 1 Corinthians 15. He said, For he must reign until he put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under Christ's feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted. Notice this. Who put all things in subjection under him. Now, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. What's he saying? That's the crux of the consummation and fulfillment of all the gospel message, that God would be all in all. You know what he's saying? He's saying there's coming a day when all ethne, all ethnic groups are going to be round about the throne singing praises to the one who brought us salvation. He says all of history is headed to the moment where all believers, past and present and future, would be round about the throne of God singing praises to the God who brought us salvation. He says, I'm going to give you a snapshot of eternity. He said, death is going to be no more. Are you with me, church? There's coming a day when death will be no more. Are you excited about that? There's coming a day with sin diseased bodies are being overcome and replaced with resurrected living bodies. He says death will be no more. Now listen, in a sense, Jesus did defeat death already by overcoming death, hell, and the grave. But in another sense, death is not yet fully overcome because we actually will die. We still live in a world with funerals. I will preach a funeral this week probably of Dorothy Dunn at her graveside. I will be there as she has moved on to the next phase of life or her own reward. But he says you got to know where a history is heading. Every knee will bow and every 
tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is where all of history is headed. We know the end of the story. Revelation 5, Revelation 7, every nation, every tribe, every ethne, every people group, every tongue is round about the, the throne of God. All ethne are round the throne of God singing praises to God. All of history is headed there. So why would we not right now in our lives live with that goal in mind? Why would we not wake up every day with that goal in mind? That's where history's going. Everybody's going to be around the throne. Everybody of every tribe, nation, tongue, and people will be there. So why not now in the short hours I have, in the short days I have, leverage my life for that moment? If you know all of history is headed to that day when all nations are worshiping God, then why not live your life today for that goal? Because that's what counts. That's what matters. That's what matters. Jesse, would you come? So let's put this all together. Go with me for a moment to Southeast Asia. I read a story this week, <clears throat> confirmed and true. A missionary trained with the SBC called the IMB, the International Mission Board, was trained here in America years ago and went to Southeast Asia. And in Southeast Asia, began to minister among the people groups. What they were doing is they would get into this village, a remote village there in Southeast Asia. They would gather them. It's not far from Malaysia. It's right on the Malaysian border. And they were investing in these churches to send missionaries into the remote villages. Well, this missionary who was from America, who was actually not far from Nashville, Tennessee. This missionary trained some other missionaries to go into these remote villages. And he felt the call of God to go into an animalistic village that was very bent on idolatry and very bent on ornate jewelry, necklaces, bracelets, and such. He said they went into, this was last year, they went into the village and they began to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and some people listened and some people believed. He said they had to build rapport and relationship but some people started believing the gospel. He said one day we went up on the mountainside and these people started said, well, if Jesus is real, then we no longer need these idols. They had these idols in their houses and they took them and they laid them, if you will, in the center of this mountain as if they were gonna have a big bonfire for all of these idols. He was just so stoked. You can imagine this missionary team is like weeping before the Lord, so excited. The next morning he wakes up and he goes down to the pile and everybody in the village is going and taking their ornate jewelry from the pile and putting it back on and putting it back up in their houses. And he said, what in the world's going on? Why are you doing this? And he said, ever since you came and told us about this Jesus, our village leader died. And we believe the village leader died because you came and shared with us Jesus Christ. He can't be really real. So they are distraught. They leave the people, they go to their huts and they begin to weep and agonize with God and say, God, why in the world are you doing this? You love these people. You want them to know you. Why would you do this? Why would you let this village leader die? What is going on here? They come back to the people and they say, what can we do? And they said, the least you can do is offer your condolences to the family. True story, last year, 2018, they walk down out of the village into this home. There's people mourning everywhere. They walk into the home. They meet the wife of the village leader. They, condole, they give her condolences, and they try to console her and bring comfort to her. And they walk past her and hug her, and they walk over to the body. In this particular village, there are traditions. They don't just lay in the house for seven days. They lay for 10 days. So the person lays for 10 days. Then they're embalmed, and then they're put away. But they lay in the house. So they walked over to this man. They're standing next to this man, and they start praying silently. They don't pray out loud, but they start praying silently. They gather their hands around and they say, God, what in the world? Why would you do this? Show these people your love. Show these people your grace, Jesus. And about that time, 
the village leader coughed. And the room got real quiet. And then he coughed again. And one minute went to two minutes and he coughed again and sat straight up and released this cough from his lungs. Everybody around looks at these Christians and said, what is going on? They said, we figured this is as good a time as ever to tell them about the gospel. And they shared the gospel with them. And they burned the idols in that village. I know what you're thinking. He probably, was he really dead? Well, I wasn't there, so I don't know. But I will tell you this. Third world countries know how to determine death when death has come because they see it every day. They know what death looks like. And the missionary, after coming to America and people doubting him, was he really dead or was he just swooning? He said, well, listen, all I know is this. If the man wasn't dead, God sure did choose an opportune time for that man to cough. (laughs) And I like that. I like that. You know why? All I do know this morning is this. We serve a king who has conquered death, hell, and the grave. We have a message today with the power to transform and to translate lives from death to life. Not just in this age, but the age to come. So why would not all of us who say to God, where do you want me going, God? What do you want me doing? I exhort you today, you listen to me, church, before you lay your head on your pillow tonight. Maybe you do it just a few moments. We're going to have altar time. You can do it in this altar. But before you go to bed tonight, if you're married, get your spouse with you. If you've got kids, get your kids with you. Get down before the Lord. Get on your knees and say, God, where do you want us going? Where do you want us going? And then listen. Trust Him to lead you more than you trust your comforts. Trust Him to lead you more than you trust your idea of security. Trust Him to lead you more than your idea of American success. Trust Him more. Listen, if you can trust Him to save your soul for eternity, then you can trust Him definitely to lead your life on earth. So you trust Him. Say, God, where do you want us going? How how do you want us giving? How do you want us giving to this campaign? How, how how, How do you want my life my job, my resource to go towards the work of your kingdom in this city. How how do you want it? And then just listen. That's the cool thing for us as pastors. We feel no pressure in this sense because I didn't start dwelling place. And it wasn't dwelling place wasn't our idea. It's the idea of God. If God wants us to have land, if God wants us to build a church, if God wants us to have greater facilities, to impact more families, to reach more families, to plant more churches, He will do it. But it takes us obeying. It takes us saying, you know what? Yes, my life needs to matter. I want it to count. I want it to count. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.